Good morning again, church. My name is Peter. If you're visiting, I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. Uh, We're going to carry on with our preaching series entitled, Seek First. Jesus' challenge from Matthew 6 about life and money. Black Friday is this week. Now, based on how many of us tend to treat what we call a budget, uh, I think maybe, maybe we should entitle it, entitle it Foolish Friday. But God willing in this house, based on the power of his word, it can be honor God and make disciples Friday. Amen? Yeah. It can have a ring to it if we say it enough. <laughs> so last week we left off in verse 4 of chapter 6. Today we'll pick up in verse 5. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, They have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need. Before you ask him, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond any of our thoughts or assumptions or familiarities and way beyond my words. You know us truly, Jesus. You know when we sit down and when we rise up, you discern our thoughts from afar. And my prayer right now, Jesus, is that you would help us to catch even a small glimpse of what you see about our reality so that we can live accordingly. Amen. If you're taking notes, this sermon is entitled, Our Real Needs. Our Real Needs. Now I hope, with the help of the Holy Spirit, that I can help you to see that there's often a giant chasm in between what we perceive to be our needs and what are our actual needs. 
And this chasm is just as deep as it is wide. And our inability or failure to bridge the gap leads to so much personal pain and even destruction. Because we're deeply ignorant, our minds are fallen and depraved. Uh, Our understanding is infinitely blurred. Our, Our MO, kind of our automatic behavior, modus operandi, is to aggressively move to, to fulfill a certain felt need. And in so doing, we often act violently against our actual need in that exact area. So what we think we're doing to help ourselves is actually often deeply harming ourselves because we're cutting off access to a deeper need. God, help us. Now, first of all, we see, as far as our needs are concerned... This text shows us that we have a deep need for honest and intimate relationship with our maker. And we often don't, can't, refuse to see it. Too often we maybe habitually engage in uh, like symbolic religious activity uh, or we, we, we kind of engage in dutiful spiritual activity when God is wanting authentic, passionate, unhindered devotion, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. True devotion, unhindered by anything. And so we, we do other things to mask our need. And Jesus wants us to just be honest. He says here in verse 6, Pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, we could go for days and days on the mystery of Jesus calling God Almighty Father and even commanding sinners like you and me to call him Father. This is a great mystery. Even the words, how he starts off the prayer, which we're going to get to in a little bit, when he starts off the prayer, Father in heaven. So he's the God of heaven who owns everything and he has the power to do anything he wants and yet he's father and we're supposed to relate to God who has all resources at his disposal, relate to him as father. This is a huge mystery and Jesus is saying, pray to your father who is in secret, authentic relationship. Now if you're like me, Maybe sometimes you'll, you'll enter into that secret place, but just long enough to catch a little glimpse of something special and then immediately retreat. And why? For me, it's, man, this is just too good not to tweet, right? Or a, a verse image, but then that verse image has to be, you know, like painted up a little bit. And don't lie. Don't lie. It, if, that's, if, if you're kind of in this position where you know that I do this, you probably don't pay attention to my tweets and my posts, and it's probably not because you are busy being in that secret place and abiding there as much as you're probably doing some other sort of distracting thing or maybe just trying to get a like or seven on your own post often, right? And Jesus is inviting us into this deeper place And we're so often distracted, or maybe we go there long enough to cheapen it, and we're cutting off a fundamental deeper need of intimacy with him. 
For any marriage to thrive or survive for that matter, there has to be such a clear boundary and balance such that that which the world sees from that man and woman is really just a, a, a fruit of an intimate relationship they share, uh, an unhindered devotion that that man and woman have that the world can never see. In other words, there's certain things with my wife that are just between us. And if you're going to see public devotion, it comes from that place. And likewise, God knows that our relationship with him needs to have a certain protected space, something that's just between us. Now, it's not saying, Jesus is not teaching here that the exclusive way that we are called to pray, and the only legitimate way to pray is private prayer. Of course he's not saying that. Otherwise, the scripture wouldn't command us, like in James 5, to go and pray for one another. What he's saying, though, is that any sort of public devotion that we have should be a fruit of an intimate relationship, a deep need that we're getting met in this secret place. Our grand need is intimacy with the God in heaven. We're, we're, we're cut off from that because of our sin, and yet granted access because of what Jesus does for us. And we can even pray our Father. It's a great mystery that we're going to continue to unpack here. But Jesus goes on to say something also just amazing about our needs in general. He says this in verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now this is amazing if you sit on it and consider it. And I'm going to take it even a step further Because Jesus goes on to make it clear that not only does our Father know our needs, but also we don't. We don't know our needs. What Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer is going to make that very clear. That's why I'm going to spend the second part of this time together detailing our real needs from what we're shown in the Lord's Prayer specifically. But first, I want to drive this point home. We don't really know our needs. And apparently, one of our greatest needs is not actually coming to understand our needs in in the first place because Jesus doesn't say that's one of our needs, thank God. He knows we're never going to know our own needs, and he, He works with us and meets our needs anyway and even tells us what they are. We don't We don't know our needs. Maybe you've heard the one about the man who was asking God to fix his marriage. He was deeply displeased with his wife and complaining to God about his unhappy marriage. And one day as he was walking home from work, he he prayed. He said, God, you know my needs. You know how long I've put up with my useless wife. I have to tell her to clear my plate every meal. Because she's so stupid, she hasn't figured it out after all these years. And every time she cooks for me, she never puts enough salt in my food. And I have to sprinkle it on myself. God, please help us. Come right now. Meet our needs. Fix 
our marriage, solve the problem right now. And just then, he was hit by a bus and died. God answered his prayer. He didn't know that his real need in his marriage was his own growth. Now, as silly as that fictional story is, we are all tragically bound by a similar disconnect of what our real need is. Heard of a, a friend of mine on, the, on, on a plane, and, and this guy says, if God is so sovereign, why doesn't he just solve the problem of evil right now? And my friend says to this guy, well, he could solve it right now, starting with seat 18D. What do you think about that? And the guy says, what do you mean? He's like, well, he could solve the problem of evil by destroying everyone, but he has a different game plan. God knows our real need, and it's different than what we think and what we see. We don't see. We don't know our needs. The very chapter before this, if the fictional story seemed harsh, Jesus just said something about our needs that's intensely graphic. The very same sermon, Matthew, or yeah, Matthew chapter 5, he says this, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, is he speaking figuratively or is he speaking literally? To be quite honest, I don't, I don't know for absolute certainty. I'm thinking it's mostly figurative. At least I hope. But either way, here's the point. Jesus is making clear about our needs that we have a greater need for holiness than we have for hands. In fact, if we only knew how deeply we needed to be rid of our unholiness, we wouldn't stratify our lives the way we do and our time the way we do. Jesus is the one who knows our needs before we ask him, and we don't even quite know our needs. I've heard people say before things like, man, if, if I obeyed God with this scripture, I would lose my job right on the spot. And oftentimes I think God's saying like, and your point is what? Your job or your boss, they're not your provider. I'm your provider. Or I hear things like, man, if I obeyed this scripture, I would lose my girlfriend right now. Listen, if, if your relationship with Bay <laughs> continues to cause you to sin, cut it off. Jesus is the only one who's actually paid the price to be here before anyone else, person anyway. I think, I, yeah, he's the only one who's paid the price for that. The persecuted Chinese church in the last three or four, five decades, demographically, we have, uh, we have data, statistical data to demonstrate that they are the most fruitful movement of Christians in the history of the world. And yet we also have uh, some, some stories and some data to show that they might be one of the most persecuted, tortured groups of Christians in the history of the world as well. And they have this prayer that's really common in the 
underground churches. They pray, Lord, we do not ask that you take this load off of our backs, but that you strengthen our backs. I mean, imagine if you, you saw me carrying a really heavy load and I said, hey, can you help me here? Would you come to me and pray for strength? I mean, maybe you should. Maybe that's the point. Uh, but maybe also help me, like carry it. But the point is we don't, we don't quite really know our needs. And so we'll say things like, God, why aren't you helping me? Or we'll think it, why aren't you helping me with this? And helping you is exactly what he's doing. You just don't see it. We don't know our needs. And apparently that doesn't disqualify us from having them truly met by Jesus. Now, according to the Lord's Prayer, moving on to unpacking the Lord's Prayer, we'll see that our real needs are, I see four things here, praise, provision, protection, pardon. We're going to walk through them one by one, even as we just go verse by verse through the Lord's Prayer. So number one, praise. Our greatest need. You were made by God. And you were made for God. We have a greater need for God's glory in our lives than we have for food and water. We have a need for breath, for example. But we have a greater need, greater than our need for breathing air into our lungs, is our need for breathing out praise and acclamation of his glory. We just don't often see it. Jesus teaches us to pray, verse 9, Our Father in heaven. Now, remember, that's this amazing mystery of our need for honest intimacy. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Just a few years ago, I got a degree in Spanish from Texas State University. Um, it was my senior year, 14 years ago, my senior year in my advanced uh, Spanish grammar class where grammar and basic language structure finally clicked to me. Um, I I like to think that maybe I just wasn't paying attention in the early years of education um, until I was led to Christ by a student-led campus ministry. I, I think maybe my, uh, my attention levels in school maybe were lacking. Either way, it was my senior year in college where I understood like, okay, adjectives go here, that's a verb, basic things like that. Let me just say, grammar matters. And I think nowhere does grammar, is grammar more important than here in verse nine. Hallowed be your name. Now track with me here. This is first person imperative form in the, in the original Greek. This is not declarative form, which I thought for years. In other words, this is a, pe- a petition. This is not a declaration. It's not a, uh, even like a, a passive acknowledgement. Kind of like, God, hallowed be your name. Like your name is hallowed. It's a good, it's glorious. Yeah. No, the tone of this is, is more like, please God, sanctify your name in all the earth. May your name be hallowed. May it be revered. May may your name be honored. Lord, even if I don't have food today, would you use me to that end that you are honored and revered? 
that's more like the tone. Hallowed be your name. And then he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. In other words, God, do whatever it takes to bring in the harvest of your dominion so that more and more people would turn from the false idols of false religion and false relationships and idolatrous relationships and careers and vain altruism and the selfish arousal of our basest pleasures and turn to the allegiance of your kingship in the earth and finding pleasure in you which is greater than any other pleasure that sin could offer. And God, even if I lose my job or my life or I'm fed to the lions, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there's been various times in Christian history where that prayer has been prayed in front of an actual lion or a communist dictator that was about to end someone's life. So that prayer can be prayed with whatever fears that I encounter, and Jesus is compassionate to whatever stands in the way of his kingdom coming in our lives, in our workspaces. That's why he has to teach us, son, let me help you. Pray like this. Let this be your focus to prioritize your needs. And the next thing he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This means may your obedience be lifted up here like it is there. I need to state the obvious. In, in heaven, there is no search for illicit websites. In heaven, I don't think Moses is speaking to Elijah with a bitter and harsh tone like I was talking to my kids when they were interrupting the Longhorn game yesterday. And I grieve my sin even as I'm taught to pray, God, not just ambiguously let your kingdom come, but I lament other kingdoms here, and God, may your will be done right up in here, right up on this earth, in my mouth, in my tone with my children, in how I speak to my wife driving to church. May your will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven, just like Moses speaks to Elijah right now. May your will be done. Praise is everything. Our highest need is to lift him high. And not just that, but to petition that he's lifted high everywhere. In other words, we don't just need to praise. We need to pray that he's praised everywhere. And with that, I want to invite you again to pray with us. Every week, all y'all are invited. Uh, At 9 a.m., one hour before each of our services on Sunday, we pray for 30 minutes. We pray for God's kingdom to come and for, for lost people in this city and in the globe to come to know Jesus and to be added to the, the cloud of witnesses that praise. And we're inviting you to join us every Sunday. It's amazing that the means by which God accomplishes answering these prayers 
that we're praying, your kingdom come and stuff, the means by which he does it is according to our prayers. He could do it another way. He could, he could accomplish his will without us, but he's chosen to do it this way. He wants us to pray right priority into existence, not just in our own lives, but in all the earth. One of our most important evangelistic activities is praying praise into existence, both in us and through us as we reach out to our friends. So we invite you to join us. Now, the next need mentioned here is provision. External provision of external needs might often be the only needs that we see. And even though we are left to ourselves fatally narrow and myopic with regard to seeing our external needs almost exclusively, it doesn't stop God from meeting them. I mean, think about how amazing it is that Jesus fed the 5,000, which was probably more like 20,000, knowing that that very day they would all reject him. And he fed them anyway. And think about how Jesus meets your needs even though you wander from him and take him for granted just as much as I do. And he continues to meet our needs as he's drawing us in to meet deeper needs. But even how he teaches us to pray for our provisional needs is unusual and revealing. He says, verse 11, teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. How often do we pray like that? I think most often we, we think we really need an annual surplus or endless retirement, but he just simply tells us, pray for your daily bread. Every day is an adventure. It's an opportunity to trust me today or to harden your heart about fears for tomorrow. Now, the Bible does say a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children and his children's children. But yet Jesus forbids us, as we're going to unpack next week, from storing up treasures on earth. So how do you reconcile both of these scriptures? I don't think that he's forbidding us from the forethought and responsibility of retirement savings, but I think he's warning us about finding our treasure in it. Besides, if, if the inheritance you leave for the next generation is the habit of misprioritizing your real needs, that's not an inheritance. That's called a curse. So Jesus is saying, be smart, be wise, but pray like this. Trust me, trust me with your daily needs and ask for your daily needs. He says, God, it's like this, God, give me just what I need to accomplish all that you've called me to accomplish, which is more than probably you planned on, and give me everything I need to do all of that, nothing more and nothing less. The next need we see is protection. Now, we're jumping to protection because in verse 12, Jesus does mention our need for pardon and forgiveness, uh, but then he comes back to it in verse 14. So we're going to go right to verse 13. Jesus says, 
for us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, he's not saying that God can lead us into temptation. We know from James chapter 1 that God would never tempt anyone. The words here mean, God, let us not be led into temptation. We need God's protection. We are dependent. Everyone say dependent. That's fun to say, isn't it? We're dependent on God's protection, whether we know it or not. In fact, if, if we think we're not dependent on God, it actually makes us weaker and not stronger. 1 Corinthians 10, let he who thinks he stands tall take heed lest he fall. We need God's protection, whether it's from egregious sin or from doctrinal error. There are those who pride themselves in being what they call defenders of God's truth. And while I consider this a noble task, let's not forget that it's the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture. The Holy Spirit through, through many centuries in, in different errors and heresies and cults that have arisen and fallen. The Holy Spirit who has preserved Scripture. And the Holy Spirit who promised in the beginning that He would lead us into all truth. That's a lot of truth. He will lead us into all truth and He still does that. He leads us into all truth, and he leads us not into temptation. He protects us. Now, when you consider your life, think about your future, which is good. Do you expect and hope to remain faithful? I hope you do. But do you expect and hope to remain faithful because of your faithfulness or because of his? The older I get, the more I'm convinced it's it's that last one. Psalm 73 was I've, I've become more and more face-to-face. I have so much more experience with my sinfulness. Uh, this psalm becomes more and more my favorite. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We desperately need his protection, whether we know it or not. And one of the biggest barriers of receiving his protection in your life is your own self-protection. Maybe someone's hurt you and you think that you need to protect yourself and really you're shielding yourself from his protection, from his healing, from his restoration. Don't do that. Finally, pardon. Jesus teaches us to pray for pardon, for forgiveness. Verse 12 Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Jesus died to cancel our debts. Why did he do that? Well, primarily it it was, it was actually for the world's greatest need. It was primarily for the praise of his name. Without the, the cross, the glory of the mercy of God wouldn't be so manifest. And primarily, it's for his own glory. Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, he prayed, like right before he was betrayed, he prayed, God, glorify your son as your son has glorified you. And what's the most glorious way that he was thinking about? By going to the cross. What a strange and wonderful thing. He dies for our pardon. 
This word debts in verse 12 is really important. It means that we're, it, it, that which is owed or legally due. We have an infinite legal problem on our hands. We are owed a certain wage, as Romans 6 says. The wages of sin is death. I hear people sometimes say, why would God send people to hell? Well, technically, we send ourselves away from the perfect presence of God, which is infinitely terrible. It's, we send ourselves out of God's presence forever and ever. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal life in God is, is three gifts of life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help me louder. <laughs> God knows that we have a debt that we're often unaware of, and he comes to pay for it before we're made aware of it. What an amazing God. He comes to cancel our debt. Let's be careful not to think of Jesus dying on the cross as a symbolic thing. It was a very functional thing to cancel our debt. Even though pardon is one of the last things mentioned in this prayer as far as stratifying our needs, let me tell you, it is not our last need. It's probably our most immediate need. We need to be pardoned by God and set free so that we can praise and be under the protection of, of Him and, and to be our, see our provision blessed by Him. We need to be forgiven of our sin. Jesus comes back to this and He says, verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now let's be careful. This is not saying A leads to B. Uh, it's not saying uh, like there's a works-based thing that like if you forgive others, you are earning your own forgiveness from God. This is more like saying if A is the case, it's an indication that B has happened in your life. If you are walking in forgiveness with other people, it's an indication that you've already received the transformative power of your debt being canceled by God, and you're walking in forgiveness with others because your debt's been canceled, and one day you will stand before God in heaven, and it will be declared with finality, forgiven. That's your name. You're under the blood of that which on a very real Friday afternoon was canceled for you on a cross. forgiven. If you're not forgiving others, it's likely because you're missing something about the forgiveness of God for you. And it's very possible that you're still dead in the transgressions of your own sin. Forgiven people forgive people. We're enabled to do that by a new nature. Jesus died on the cross to cancel the debt of our sin and to kill the old man. And he rose again on the third day to show his power over death, sin, and hell and to offer us new life. And he ever lives 
to make intercession for us, to draw us to himself. If you cling to unforgiveness for other, uh, unforgiveness against other people, maybe you feel like a need to hold on to it. Let me tell you, it's only killing you. Every Victory Weekend, Pastor Jess says that if, if we cling to forgiveness, it's almost like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die if we cling to unforgiveness, sorry. It's like drinking poison and thinking they're going to be harmed by it. No, Jesus wants to heal you and to bring his healing through you. We need to lay down our unforgiveness. We need to lay down anything else that would be our attempt to meet our own deepest needs outside of what God does. We need to lay it down at the cross and receive at the table of God in faith his provision, his need-meeting power. Amen? Do you stand to your feet with me?